Good afternoon. Our next case is State versus Bradley. We'll hear from the appellant. <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, your honors, may it please the court. My name is Stephen Driggers. I'm appearing for Mr. Bradley. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Connor Bradley's probation was revoked and he served a 17-month sentence based on the unreliable out-of-court statements of an unreliable self-interested witness. During the traffic stop of the car in which he was a passenger, Schedule II and four substances were recovered from the glove box. The driver, Amber Gooch, went back and forth about who the pills belonged to. First they were hers, then they were Bradley's, then some were hers and the rest Bradley's. The court below did not rely on Ms. Gooch's statements, but found incriminating evidence of constructive possession in Bradley's movements in the passenger seat and his proximity to the glove box. But this evidence more reasonably was linked to the marijuana found in the container at his feet than to whatever was in the glove box. Similarly, his unsteadiness on his feet outside the car was not incriminating as to the pills in the glove box. Taken together, this evidence does not support an inference that Bradley constructively possessed the Schedule II and four substances. Counsel, when you said that the court below didn't rely on the Gooch's testimony about who, who the drugs belonged to, what, what court were you referring to? The Court of Appeals, so, in its opinion. Are you, because you're not disputing the trial court, that was a piece of evidence the trial court considered in, in its the, assessment. Her statements were before the trial court. Uh, the Court of Appeals, in its opinion, uh, did not uh, address her statements. And does that matter for our review? No, it does not. Uh, sufficiency of evidence is a question of law and is subject to de novo review. Uh, Judge Hampson, in his dissent, congratulated the Court of Appeals for not relying on that evidence. I think he overreached when he said that her statements were incompetent, but it was that posture that the Court of Appeals addressed. I'm sorry, counsel, did, did you say we're looking at sufficiency of the evidence that is reviewed de novo? Yes. Okay, and why, why is that? Uh, there have been a long line of cases, State v. Bradshaw, for example, where the state presents sufficient evidence of each element of the, whether the state presents sufficient evidence of each element of, an, of the offense is a question of law and is re reviewed de novo. I think what Justice Berger is getting at is uh, you started out explaining some of the reasons why Gooch's testimony may not be That's correct. credible, but there certainly uh, there was testimony from a witness That's that correct. your client possessed the drugs. That's so correct. That and it's 
isn't the question, isn't the credibility of that witness something that only the trial court can address? And when it comes here, our review, the standard review is solely we're looking at was there evidence from which the court could have, not whether or not we think it's credible. There's a fine line between the two. Um, yes, certainly the, the question of credibility of her statements was before the trial court. Uh, the Court of Appeals didn't rely on her statements probably because they themselves found her statements less than reliable and they looked to other other evidence of constructive possession but on the part of Mr. Bradley. When the evidence was presented through that witness, wasn't it presented in such a way that it was accepted because it became a part of what was competent evidence, uh, despite the fact that her credibility may have been questionable? Nonetheless, what she said was accepted as competent evidence? Uh, her statements came in first through the, the police summary of the incident that was read into the record at the probation revocation hearing. Uh, her statements also were repeated by Officer Falk uh, in his testimony, who said, she went back and forth, and in the, in the end, we did not know whose pills they belonged to. As a result, the Carthage Police Department charged them both with possession of the same pills. Ultimately, was that evidence before the trial court in terms of being able to be considered with other evidence? Yes, it was. Uh, uh, Mr. Bradley objected to the, to the reading of that section of the police summary and his objection was overruled. So yes, the trial court considered those statements and allowed them. Is that a part of your argument today that that was not competent evidence? No, I believe it's competent, it's relevant. Uh, I think it's unreliable. It was certainly out of court and she was a self-interested witness isn't credibility for the trial court, not for the appellate court, such that if it's competent evidence and if the credibility was weighed on the trial court level, then we are not in position as an appellate court to judge credibility. We just look at whether or not there's competent evidence in the record. I believe that's correct, but Nonetheless, you can weigh the evidence and make a determination as to its sufficiency as to whether Mr. Bradley was in constructive possession of the pills. So when you say weigh the evidence, you, you don't mean weigh the credibility, you mean weigh the That's weight correct. of the evidence. Yeah, the standard of review in a probation revocation is extremely low. The trial court must be reasonably satisfied in his discretion that the, that the defendant has committed a crime. That determination, though, does require some weighing of the evidence in order to become satisfied that the evidence was sufficient to satisfy that standard. 
Is there a contest that the evidence was not constructively possessed that was in the glove compartment that was in front of the probationer who sat in the passenger seat at the time that the Schedule II and Schedule IV substances were found in the glove box? Yes, I would argue there is. Uh, the, the Court of Appeals found that his sitting in the passenger seat directly behind the glove box uh, was evidence proximity and his movements in the seat indicated fear of disclosure, of discovery. Uh, whether, whether that's the, whether that, whether that's a fair inference, I believe is, is at issue because anyone who is a passenger in most cars will be sitting directly in front of the, or behind the glove box. And at Bradley's feet was a container of marijuana. We don't know how much marijuana, if it was less than a half ounce, then it was a class three misdemeanor and not grounds for revocation. But his movements in that seat with marijuana at his feet more reasonably, more reasonably would be, have been connected to the marijuana than to whatever might have been in the glove box. We would assume usually that the glove box door would be closed. So it's unclear to me what he would be accomplishing by movements in the front seat that would be intended to, to, to hide what might be in a closed glove box. Bradley's that were included in the police summary of the incident and were read over objection by probation officer Epps. At the same hearing, Officer Falk conceded that based on Ms. Gooch's statements, it was unclear whose pills they whose pills they were. So both Ms. Gooch and Bradley were charged for the pills. Officers at the scene were familiar with Ms. Gooch because about a month earlier, her mother had taken out involuntary commitment papers on her. When she was picked up on those papers, police found drugs in her car and took her to the hospital. During the traffic stop here, she knew she was facing multiple charges. It was in her interest to implicate anyone other than herself. In the end, from this incident, she pled guilty to simple possession of the Schedule II and four substances, carrying a concealed gun, and level five driving while impaired. Four months after this stop, in a separate incident, she was charged and later pled guilty to maintaining a vehicle in possession of marijuana. A charge of possession of Xanax from that incident was dismissed. A person has constructive possession of an item where it's not in his person or with, on his person or within his grasp, but where he nevertheless has the power and intent to control its disposition and use. Or he does not have exclusive control of the place where an item is found, there must be other incriminating circumstances before constructive possession may be inferred. Mere proximity without more does not support 
an inference of constructive possession. Instead of relying on Gooch's statements, the court below saw Bradley's movements in the passenger seat as demonstrating fear of discovery of the drugs in the glove box. Although it observed that the marijuana was at his feet, it did not consider that if Bradley's fear of discovery, his fear was related to that marijuana. Similarly, the court found incriminating Bradley's unsteadiness on his feet outside the car. But his blood was not tested because he was not driving and he refused EMS treatment. There is evidence though that during the six months he had been on probation, he had not had any drug or alcohol treatment, he had passed all his blood tests, and he had qualified to have his ankle monitor removed. At the revocation hearing, the state stressed that Bradley was in constructive possession of the marijuana, but the violation reports did not allege that he had possessed a Schedule VI substance. As before, there is no evidence of how much marijuana was in that container, and if less than half ounce, it was not grounds for revocation of probation. Where evidence is circumstantial, a court must consider whether a reasonable evidence of inference of a defendant's guilt may be drawn from the circumstances, or whether other evidence which might corroborate his guilt has little probative value. The standard for revocation is low, but given the totality of the evidence here, it was an abuse of discretion for the trial court to revoke Bradley's probation. It had before it Gooch's statements made while she was impaired and circumstances, other, circumstances that do not incriminate Bradley as to constructive possession of the pills. Taken together, the evidence does not reasonably support an inference Bradley committed a crime. It was error for the trial court to revoke his probation, affirm it. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, and may it please the court. My name is Rob Ennis, and I represent the state in this matter. The sole issue before this court is whether the Court of Appeals erred by holding that the trial court did not abuse its discretion by revoking the defendant's probation. Specifically, the dispute below centered on whether this evidence was sufficient to support the trial court's finding that the defendant had committed a revocable condition of his probation not to commit a new criminal offense. As the Court of Appeals correctly held, and I think my colleague might have acknowledged that Gooch's statements were indeed competent evidence from which could add to the totality of circumstances before the probation court, the evidence was sufficient to support a finding that the defendant had committed in the trial court's reasonable satisfaction a new criminal offense. Do you think it matters at all that the Court of Appeals, but really both the majority and the dissent, never really talk about Gooch's, you know, there's the footnote in the dissent, but other than that, there's really no discussion of this, which 
it sounds like perhaps uh, you see that as the most important piece of evidence for the trial court to get to where it was going. So what, does it matter at all that, that the Court of Appeals didn't mention it? Uh, Your Honor, I don't think it does matter um, it, because I guess ultimately sort of like the same idea of right result, wrong reason when we're looking at lower court judgments um, from above. So long as the trial courts, I mean the Court of Appeals ultimate ruling was correct, which here was that the probation court did not abuse its discretion by revoking the defendant's probation, um, then I don't think the fact that they hadn't relied on, or at least acknowledged in their opinion, um, those statements as adding to the totality of circumstances, um, I don't think that's an, uh, an error, I guess I, I would say. Um, and, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I guess, you know, turning to my first point, the Court of Appeals was, was correct to hold that the evidence was sufficient. Um, for more than 50 years, this court's precedent has established that uh, the state need not prove the alleged violation of a probation of a probation condition um, beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the evidence is, and I think uh, my colleague acknowledges now, the requirement is just that the evidence be reasonably, that reasonably satisfy the trial court um, that the defendant had committed uh, a new offense. And Counsel, do, do you think that um, um, the evidence cited by the Court of Appeals without the statements by Ms. Gooch is sufficient? Uh, Your Honor, yes, I would say it's sufficient to satisfy the lower burden of reasonable satisfaction. Um, and one reason I would say that is this court's opinion in Murchison, um, in that situation, the defendant was charged with violating his probation for committing first-degree burglary, first-degree kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon. And the only evidence at the probation revocation hearing that were supporting that supported uh, his conduct as violating each essential element of those different crimes were the probation officer's testimony that the defendant's mother had called him after the incident and explained that the defendant broke into her house and um, her and the defendant's girlfriend hid into a closet and he was threatening them with a knife. Um, and based on that and also the AOC printout in Murchison of the defendant's indictment for only first degree burglary, um, this court held that that was sufficient evidence to support the trial court's finding that the defendant had violated his probation by committing a new criminal offense. So based on the, the evidence here, we have, um, you know, we have a, more than Murchison even, we have a officer who was actually on the scene of the crime uh, or on the scene of the traffic stop who testified about the incident. Um, we have the probation officer also testifying about the charges that were um, lodged against the defendant as a result of the traffic stop. And the particular facts that um, the Court of Appeals has highlighted, uh, you know, the defense, this court has acknowledged um, certain factors typically uh, arise for finding an inference of constructive possession, one being proximity. Uh, and here we have the proximity in space in that he was in the car and then also in time he was present in the car when the drugs were found. Um, we also have an indicia of control. This court has recognized if the defendant's in a place where he could place the controlled substances where they were found. And here the defendant was sitting in the shotgun seat um, within an arm's reach of the glove box. And we also have uh, his excessive movements in the, in the shotgun seat that were so uh, ex excessive that another officer deemed it necessary to pull him from the vehicle 
which as the Court of Appeals recognized, could be suggestive of his awareness of the controlled substances in the vehicle um, and efforts at concealment uh, and, and yeah, efforts at concealment. Um, and we also have the defendant's significant degree of impairment um, and it, you know, the, the observations were that he was unsteady on his feet and that he was falling in and out of consciousness. Um, and my colleague has suggested that the evasive movements or the excessive movements would be, it would be more reasonable inference to suggest that that was the defendant um, trying to hide the marijuana in the car. Um, but as this court has recognized, I mean, as this court has questioned, the credibility is not, um, not for this court as an appellate court. Credibility is for the trial court. <clears throat> you haven't really, I've noticed, um, mentioned the, the marijuana, the presence of a clear container of marijuana as a basis for the revocation. Um, but didn't the state, wasn't that argued in front of the trial court judge? And what's, how are we to think about the, the, the what's the pertinence of the container of marijuana to, the, to this court's review? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, I would say that it, it wouldn't be pertinent. And the reason is that the violation report had never alleged that he possessed marijuana. The probation officer at the probation hearing never testified that he was charged with violating his probation for possessing marijuana. Um, there was marijuana evidence that was presented, and the state did argue uh, that the evidence seemed sufficient to support a constructive possession theory of the marijuana, but the trial court in making its findings said that it has found the defendant to have violated his probation as alleged in the violation reports, which again didn't ha allege a violation of marijuana possession. And in the trial court's judgment, he adopted the allegations from the violations reports, which again did not allege the marijuana possession. Um, and so I would say that the, uh, you know, the state shouldn't have argued that, I guess, because it wasn't an allegation that was in the violation report. Um, but, you know, as even as uh, just Judge Hampson acknowledged in his dissent, you know, we, we presume that the trial court disregards incompetent evidence. And so um, we would presume in this situation that even if the state made an argument about marijuana possession, that wasn't something that went into the court's consideration, absent a showing by the defendant or the appellant um, that that was not correct, because we would apply the presumption of regularity um, that would that attaches to all judicial action. Oh, and was there an objection to that argument? Uh, Your Honor, there was not. And and also, uh, and, unless I'm reading the, the this portion of the uh, transcript incorrectly, uh, the prosecutor argued uh, additionally uh, there were controlled substances in the glove box. That's right, Your Honor. So, so does the fact that uh, um, a party makes an argument, an unobjected to argument, um, is that really relevant to our determination, given the standard of review? Uh, Your Honor, I don't believe it is. Um, I don't believe that is relevant. And, um, and like you mentioned, the prosecutor here did argue also about the controlled substances um, and Gooch's statements, her confession also implicating the defendant um, she confessed that she owned uh, some of the drugs in the car, but that I think the exact wording was that she just bought 20 of the Xanaxes, and then the rest were the defendants. Um, and, and even that language, too, kind of can give an inference of um, that they had 
bought maybe these substances together. They were three different controlled substances contained in one pill bottle. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, that's an incriminating um, circumstance there. And, uh, the defendant has, excuse me. So yeah, and, and Your Honor, um, Justice Berg, what you were mentioning about before, you know, the argument about the marijuana is not properly before this court, um, not based on your questioning, I apologize. Um, for one thing, the defendant never presented it to the trial court. He never objected to evidence about marijuana possession coming in, never objected to the state's argument. Um, he also never asked the trial court to make more specific findings about what uh, a criminal offense he found the defendant to have committed, um, if that was a question. And also, he failed to argue this point before the Court of Appeals. Um, the first time, instead, that that was brought up was at the dissent, and this court has held that um, an argument raised by the dissent for the first time is not properly before this court based on an appeal as of right from the dissenting opinion below. Do, do you think there's also an argument that given the um, um, allegations in the violation report that the specificity of the controlled substances could be surplusage? Your Honor, I do think there's an argument for that. And um, the reason would be this court's decision in Jones because it talks about the defendant's um, particular behavior. Um, so long as he has notice of the particular behavior so that he will be able to be prepare a defense. And so in this case, we have, he's, the defendant is, uh, is aware that he um, is being charged with crimes arising from the traffic stop. Um, he was in the vehicle and the vehicle had different types of controlled substances in it. Um, so, so I think there could be an argument that, you know, a finding of um, any controlled substances, I guess, not a finding of any controlled substances, but, um, but yeah, so I- It may, it may not be, it's just something that struck me as, as I was reading through the case that, uh, that there's a potential argument there for surplusage. Mm -hmm. I think that's right, Your Honor. Um, and- Well, let me just uh, expand on that a little bit. Um, it, it's true that there is, there are some due process elements to a uh, revocation hearing, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and so um, he had some rights to have some idea of what he was supposed to possess. And, and in, in this case, his defense to um, the, if, 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 the, if the probation violation report was about him possessing the marijuana, his defense might be about the quantity of the drugs in the container, Whereas his defense about the other substances found in the glove box may relate to, you know, who possessed, who who they belong to, and and the reliability of the statements made um, by Ms. Gooch. So surely his defense would depend on understanding what what he was alleged to have possessed in this in this particular case. Uh, I think you're right, Your Honor, um, and and I and we don't really have to worry about too much that with the, in this case because of the fact that. Um, the particular controlled substances were identified in the violation report. Um, so in this situation, we don't have to worry about any preparation of a defense right. in that sense. And so then I, I also want to ask you about the state's view on the relevance, if any, of what Ms. Gooch was ultimately convicted of. Uh, Your Honor, the state would 
the state's view is that that's irrelevant. Um, what, what this court is reviewing is the Court of Appeals decision below, and what the Court of Appeals was reviewing is the trial court's decision below. And so the convictions of Gooch occurred after the defendant, I mean the probation court in this case, decided to revoke the defendant's probation. And uh, so that was never before the trial court when it was deciding to revoke the defendant's probation. So it therefore shouldn't have been before the Court of Appeals in assessing the trial court's action in deciding to revoke the defendant's probation. And then also the additional layer, it, it's not properly before this court because of the fact that it was not before the Court of Appeals and it was not before the, the trial court. And so is, this, is, is it the state's position that both of these individuals could ultimately be found responsible for possessing the drugs that were in the glove compartment? Uh, yes, Your Honor, um, because, you know, as Gooch said in her statements, she only bought 20 of the Xanaxes, and so the defendant and the defendant owned the rest. Right, but um, I'm, I'm saying all of them, not just, not that they divided what was in the glove compartment, but that they both were responsible for possessing all of the substances. Because as I understand it, she was found guilty of, of Schedule Two and Schedule Four substances, which would be beyond just the Xanax. Uh, Your Honor, I think Xanax is Schedule Four substance. Right, right, but she's also found responsible for Schedule Two. That's right. And that's the same substance that apparently the trial court considered Mr. Bradley to be in possession of. That's right, Your Honor, um, and. We don't know the number of pills in the bottle, how many controlled Schedule II controlled substances there were. Um, also, uh, you can have joint ownership um, over drugs. You know, there could be a situation, and again, this I guess just goes to the whole informal uh, nature of the revocation proceeding. The state doesn't have to um, do a robust, uh, you know, the, the Fifth Amendment due process clause, which gives the defendant a constitutional right to hold the state to a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt to each essential element does not apply in probation revocation hearings. Right. Um, we have, you know, the, the limited 14th Amendment due process rights apply here, um, which the state would contend were, you know, aptly uh, afforded to the defendant. The only case that um, I have seen where there has been a constitutional violation uh, for insufficient evidence was when there has been zero evidence at all um, there was no evidentiary basis to um, find a defendant had violated his probation. That's not what we have in this case. Um, we have, oh, I'm sorry. Well, let me, before you, so I, I, let me just ask you, so um, State v. Guffey, which was cited um, in the Court of Appeals opinion and in the defendant's brief, it's a 1960 case, mm -hmm. but in that case, this court said, in our opinion, when a criminal charge is pending in a court of competent jurisdiction, which charge is the sole basis for activating a previously suspended sentence, such sentence should not be activated unless there is a conviction on the pending charge or there is a plea of guilty entered thereto. So obviously you're saying that is no longer good law. That's not the law we apply in North Carolina. Uh, Your Honor, I, I think that's just a, that's not a law that seemed to me like it was just a, um, advice or uh, opinion from the court. I don't think it, it you could say that it's binding precedent, um, just a suggestion or an instruction. Um, so then let me just probe a little bit more on, on what the limits of due process are, because if in this case, for example, 
um, the only evidence, it, let's say Mr. Um, Bradley was not in the car at all, he was at work, <laughs> and she is stopped, and she says, oh, those drugs in the glove compartment don't belong to me, they belong to Mr. Bradley. She says that to the police, police tell his probation officer, the, uh, the probation officer and the, and the officer um, come to his hearing. Is that enough to convict him? I mean, or sorry, is that enough to revoke his probation? Um, Your Honor, I, luckily we don't have that in this situation, but I understand that you're trying to um, test the limits, I guess, of, of uh, the understanding of the due process clause. Um, I, I think it would depend on the circumstances. You know, if there's other indicia of reliability that um, would make the Gooch's statements more reliable, then I think that would be sufficient. Um, it's just like, for instance, in Murchison, this court held that the defendant's mother's statements about the defendant breaking into the house and then threatening the defendant and the defendant's girlfriend with a knife um, was sufficient to support the trial court's finding that the defendant had committed a new criminal offense. Okay, thank you. Multiple parties can have constructive possession over the same goods, can't they? That's right, that's right, Your Honor. So in the circumstance that we have in this case, the probationer could be deemed to have constructive possession over the controlled substances in the glove box because of his proximity to them. And likewise, Ms. Gooch, as the operator of the vehicle, could also likewise be deemed to have constructive possession because she controls the vehicle. Is that correct? I think that's correct, Your Honor. So therefore, even though Ms. Gooch, and I know your position is, it's irrelevant whether or not she pled guilty or not, but even assuming that may be a factor, each of the two of them can constructively possess what was in the glove box. Is that right? That's right, Your Honor. Yep, that's right. And which is another reason why the state doesn't think that the conviction is, is all that relevant. And also, in these probation revocation hearings, the trial court is a fact finder, correct? That's right, So Your Honor. much like if you had a traffic accident, you had 100 witnesses that said, car A, the light was green. And you had one witness that said, oh, no, I, I saw it. Car A, the light was, light was red. And the jury said, yes, the light was red. An appellate court would say, well, that's, I don't know how they got there. 100 people lying and one telling the truth, but that's their job, not ours. And here, if let's say in a hypothetical, Gooch said, oh, yeah, those drugs belong to the defendant, who's not even in the car. It's just off somewhere else. And the trial court looks Gooch in the eyes and says this person is credible in telling the truth. And that would be enough evidence, would it not? To That's right, revoke? Your Honor. It, it, it would. It would. Um, and, and you bring up a good point about, um, well, your question brings up a good point about it would be sufficient to um, overcome the much stricter um, burden of proof in a criminal trial from which we allow um, inferences. So <laughs> I don't think I said that very well. But, um, you know, the evidence that's sufficient to um, allow, to permit, to, mit, to permit a jury to make a reasonable inference, um, it, I guess if it, if it satisfies the standard of satisfaction beyond a reasonable doubt, then it, it clearly would satisfy the much, much lower standard of reasonable satisfaction. But, but here we don't have Ms. Gooch standing in front of the judge and the judge deciding whether she's telling the truth. So it's hearsay, which traditionally we think is not, 
in, in, a, when, in a regular trial where there is a higher burden of proof, um, we think that it's not admissible because the person isn't there to, for a credibility termination. That's right, Your Honor. Um, but all, there's also several exceptions to the hearsay rule that does allow that sort of evidence to come in. Um, you know, th the rules of evidence do not apply in this situation, but if they did, um, based on the evidence presented, there might need to be more evidence, but, you know, it could fall under 803. I think it's, um, boy, there's so many, but admission of a party opponent. Um, you know, it's not that the defendant, it's not that Gooch gave statements um, that she had an incentive, I guess, to um, say that the defendant, to implicate the defendant. It's not like her statements, they were, they were fully self Inculpating, I think is the right. Phrase. You're looking for statement against interest, right? Because yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Why would you admit that some of the drugs are yours, which is a crime? Right. Exactly unless you're right. telling the truth. And yep. Exactly right. So you know things like that that would enhance the. But, but life. And ultimately, isn't the point that uh, someone must decide was that a truthful statement or not? Because it is a statement that can be considered in a probation revocation hearing, and the only forum in which that can happen is a trial court because we don't find facts, so we don't ever decide we think someone's telling the truth or not here in the appellate court, right? Yep, that's exactly right, Your Honor. Yep, and you know, as this court's precedent is well well settled that uh, this court is not a fact-finding court. It doesn't make credibility determinations. Um, that's for the, the fact finder, whether it be a jury or whether it be a trial court. Um, but that's not, that's not for this court. Um, and so the defense- Just a couple of points. Um, we've gone back and forth about the credibility of Ms. Gooch's statements uh, and whether the trial court made a credibility decision as to her statements. Uh, because the trial court did not, did not make a finding that she was credible, it simply said that he has uh, Mr. Bradley has uh, violated, has committed new offenses as alleged in the report, then we don't know the extent to which the trial court relied on her statements. They were before it. Uh, the, sum, the, the state argued, made passing mention of the fact she had made statements uh, and that she had said the pills were hers, but went on to stress the marijuana and his constructive possession of the marijuana. Uh, we also need to be aware that she made several statements and that what happened with the police report was that they focused on one of the three statements that she made, that some of the, some of the pills were hers and some of them uh, and the rest were Bradley's. But before that, she had said they were all hers and then they were all Bradley's. So that we're not sure, if we are looking to her hearsay statements, we need to look at all of them and not just focus as the Carthage Police Department did on this, the one of the three statements that she made. Counsel, are you arguing that it was error, to your, to your right, are you arguing that it was error for the trial court not to have made a finding about the statements by Ms. Gooch? No, I'm not. I'm just saying that uh, as we are considering the credibility of 
of her statements, then we need to recognize that the trial court didn't address that. The trial court simply made a summary statement that it was satisfied he had committed the offenses. So we're not sure how much the trial court relied on that. We do know that the Court of Appeals didn't rely on her statements at all and found instead evidence of incriminating circumstances that were sufficient for constructive possession. And what we have argued today is those additional incriminating circumstances were not sufficient to support an inference of constructive possession of the pills. I think that my point here plays directly into my colleague's reliance on Murchison because in Murchison what we had was a detailed report by a witness of the defendant's intentions with regard to his crime and details as to the crime and so on. Here what we have are not those kinds of details. What we have are this back and forth testimony or back and forth statements that then got brought into the trial court by means of the report that was read into the record. We also need to take into account that law enforcement itself, based on her statements, didn't know who the pills belonged to. So they kicked the can down the road. They charged both of them with the same substances. Thank you. If there are no other questions, then. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Clark. 